It's the All Night Long Wrestling Podcast. With the Enforcer. I believe you're called Enforcers, Gordon. I sell women's shoes. And the Stallion. Stallion, baby! I am not what you would call a handsome man. I'll kick you in the nuts and you'll smile at me and like it. All night hello everybody welcome to another edition of the all night long wrestling podcast we are your host he is the stallion i am the enforcer and today we are joined by the voice of my childhood and i'm not just saying that because the gentleman is joining us today you might know him as the world's most dangerous announcer you also might know him as gary michael capetta the voice of the wcw throughout most of our childhood so gary welcome to the all night long wrestling podcast and we very much appreciate you stopping by the show thanks i appreciate that you know i guess it just depends on how old each listener is because I may be the voice of their WWF childhood or their WCW childhood or in the mid-2000s, their Ring of Honor childhood. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I just uh, I'm the ever ready bunny. I just keep on going. Yeah, absolutely. And the man doesn't age. And listen, we're not just saying that Joe and I had a chance to spend some time with you at WrestleCon last weekend. And kudos to you. I don't know if you found the fountain of youth, my friend, but you look the same as you did at Halloween Havoc 91. Thank you. I appreciate that. I don't do anything. You know what? Good genes, I think. <laughs> well, My mom lived till, till uh, the age of 96. So, uh, yeah. That, that is good genes. If we could all be so lucky. But you, I want to start with, I, I was told you were given the name the world's most dangerous announcer by Jim Cornette. How did you stumble upon that name? And is that true? Uh, that is true. And... Um, <laughs> that comes from wrestling history from Indianapolis. World's most dangerous wrestler was Dick the Bruiser. And when he was huge, David Letterman was living in Indianapolis and he was a wrestling fan. And when he started his show, he called the uh, Paul Shaver audience, uh, the Paul Shaver um, Orchestra, world's most dangerous band. So I guess, yeah, I mean, it's from uh, Indianapolis, and I don't know how Jim came up. You know, it just stuck. He called, he called me that one night, and, uh, and uh, people just kind of liked it. So now I even have World's Most Dangerous T-shirts. I have World's Most Dangerous, um, you know, line of merchandise. Does Jim Cornette get a cut of that merchandise or no? No, 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 no. You can be sure that if there was any legal way for him to do that, he would do that. Yes. But, you know, I can't dump on Jim because when I brought my stage show to Louisville, um, he couldn't make the show, but we went out to lunch. He took me to his favorite barbecue place and and he, he picked up the, the tab. So, you know, that's history right there. <laughs> I love Jim. Wow. Stop the press. Jim Cornette picked up the tab. I don't know. Did um did you hear that story about the fan that was at the Shield um, WWE show about two or three nights ago and he was wearing a Jim Cornette shirt and they kicked him out of the show? Did, did you hear that? No, I didn't hear that. No, I, I've heard that about um, AEW shirts. Yeah. 
Sure. This fan, he happened, um, I believe he was a uh, disabled fan and he took to the internet and he complained to the WWE and Jim Cornette messaged him right away and said, I'm so sorry that happened. Hopefully you never buy another ticket to WWE and to um, private message him how much money he spent because Jim Cornette would personally reimburse him. Wow. Why didn't they just give the give the kid a WWE t-shirt? Just put it over his shirt. If that bothers them, I mean, it like it's going to matter. It's going to it's going to affect their bottom line. I don't know. Super sensitive. Yeah, I mean, well, they just pulled The Undertaker and Kurt Angle from Starcast, so it seems like they're getting extra sensitive at, the, at this stage of the game. But as you, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, a lot of people remember you from WCW, but not many people um, were where You were the voice of the W, uh, you said WWWF, correct? At that point, it was from seven. And, yeah, and it transitioned into the WWF while I was there. Yeah, I was there so for uh, 11 years, from 1974 to 1985. Yeah, you were uh, a very young man at that point. How did you come upon the announcing gig for the WWWF, and were you always a wrestling fan growing up? I was a wrestling fan growing up, and uh, in order to get into the matches for free, I uh, took a ride into New York City. I went to a magazine's um, headquarters. I sat outside the editor's office until he gave me a press pass, so uh, that got me into the matches for free, and... um, I wrote a couple of articles for them, and three months later, I was at Ringside in Wildwood, New Jersey. It was the first um, of a weekly series that was going on in Wildwood throughout the summer, and they didn't have a ring announcer. So I volunteered, and uh, that's how it started. I mean, it's what happened today. A stroke of luck. I mean, that's and to for to be such a fan and be put in that position. How was it difficult for you to transition, or was it just a natural progression? You were out there. You enjoy, clearly with your stage show, which we'll talk about. You love being in front of a crowd. It came real easy to you. Yeah, but not back then. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I was real clunky, um, and the people picked up on it right away. The very first time um, I, I went up the ring steps. And as I stood on the ring apron, I looked at the ropes and I thought, how the hell do I get in? Like, I'm not going to fly over the top. Like, do you go, you know, if you've never done it before, you you have to think about it, right? Yeah, it's not. And you've seen plenty of people fall doing it. If you've never gotten into a boxing ring, a professional wrestling ring, it's not easy. It's tricky. Right. And um, and it took me a while. And and people, um, they picked up on it. This was more of a lesson in anything. And it caused um, me to be able to interact with the audience. Um, they used to jeer me. They used to throw things at me. I was announcing one night and in Wildwood and I lost the sight of my right eye and I didn't know why. And, um, comes someone had flipped a, a hot dog, hit me in the forehead and slipped through my glasses and smeared my glasses with mustard. And so, I just I just kept on going like I didn't miss it because I was like very dutiful and that's what I was supposed to do and and they howled and and they laughed and it was just part of their entertainment. And what year was this? That I started in 1974. I was 21 years old. I had just graduated from college. Do you think people were meaner in 1974 because throwing at a hot dog at a man is that, that's a rough deal. No, no, they did, that, that wasn't an aggressive move. They were just having fun. Yeah. Well, now you can't have that kind of fun because you get thrown out real fast. Well, if you were caught, you got thrown out back then, too. But um, no, and, and, and 
and you know, I, I, um, I think that the people saw me as the guy that sits next to them at ringside. I wasn't like separated from them in any way. And, and yeah, and, and there was an appeal to that. Sure. One of the fans, one of the boys kind of, you know, you walk that line um, in the WWF. I mean, I know you announced Madison Square Garden, a lot of all-star wrestling who necessarily showed you the ropes there. Was there anybody that kind of took you under their ring, under their wing? And was like, Hey, listen, this is how we do things here. Nope. <laughs> I never had a communications course. I was never tutored by anyone. The thing is um, back in those times, the only wrestling in the area was WWWF. So as long as I can, I worked for Gorilla Monsoon. And as long as I kept showing up and he kept on asking me back, um, it was just a matter of practice and no one else could get good, could, could, could refine any kind of skills because there was no way to break in. We were it. This was it. And Gorilla Monsoon was a, a part owner of Capital Wrestling, which was the WWWF, with Vince Sr. And he had a territory within the territory where he promoted his own shows. And we lived in the same state, so um, I was teaching school. And after I finished teaching, I just got on the road and went to high schools and armories and um, clubs, um, convention centers, anywhere where you could gather people, army bases, and theaters. Yeah. And so I, I was working like an average of three nights a week, uh, mostly weeknights. And um, after two years of doing that, Monsoon asked if I wanted to announce on their TV. So I became the TV announcer for their A show, which was Championship Wrestling, it was um, filmed in Philadelphia. And at first I said to him, no, I, I can't do that. And he said, why not? I said, I don't know. I've never been on TV. He said, ah, it's easy. You just, you know, do what you do and don't worry about it. So, um, yeah, he, he took me under his wing in, in, in that way. But no one ever said to me, announce in this style or that style in, uh, in the beginning Kind of the, the fake it till you make it, right? I, I know you said uh, Gorilla Monsoon, he's a, a legendary figure in no matter, you know, WCW, WF, whatever, whatever you watch, Gorilla Monsoon is uh, a, a legend of the business. And you hear a lot of great stories about Gorilla. He was uh, a bit of a gambler, some would say. What was your experience like with Gorilla Monsoon? Yeah, I always had this huge roll of bills in his pocket. And we both live in New Jersey, and Atlantic City had just opened up. So he spent a lot of time down in Atlantic City. He just loved the casinos. And like you said, he loved to gamble. Um, but he was he was wonderful. His family was wonderful to me. Um, I would go over to his house and he had a finished basement and we'd play pool. Um, yeah, he was like an uncle to me um, in those early days. That seems like the general consensus. Everybody said how you know great of a man he was and what kind of an impact he had on the business, especially with uh, Vince Jr. Now, I, I read this. Feel free to dispel these rumors, but... Uh, I read that uh, your time in the WWF ended after an argument with Vince McMahon. Was that true? No. Okay. That's no, no argument. Okay. Um, I, it was, uh, it was uh, I, I think it was after WrestleMania 1, and I had an opportunity to announce on ESPN. Um, I knew I didn't have a future with them. It is true that Vinny 
he never showed any uh, respect. He never showed that he cared for me in any way. <laughs> and I think that was territorial on his part because um, it was more like I was um, Monsoon's announcer and Howard Finkel was Vinny's announcer. And I think that had a lot to do with it. Although I can't, the other thing I always thought was um, I was financially independent of wrestling. I didn't need wrestling to earn a living. And I, he didn't like that because I believe he felt that he couldn't control you if he wasn't supporting you. So, um, yeah, in the 11 years that I announced, and eight of those years was on WWF TV, he spoke to me three times. Like, he acknowledged my presence three times. Wow. And uh, he did fire me from the spectrum. We didn't have an argument. There's nothing to argue about. The boss tells you, you know, we don't want you to come back here anymore. <laughs> you don't come back. I mean, there's, um, I, you know, at one point also, I had asked for a raise while I was doing their all-star TV show. And that was considered, um, you didn't do that. You know, you didn't ask for a raise. You just took what was handed to you and, and was, was grateful. That's what most guys did. Um, but I asked his father, uh, Finn Sr. And I was ready to defend myself and, and to, you know, come back with whatever he might say as to, you know, why I deserve this raise. Except he gave me the one answer that I wasn't prepared for, which was, I can't afford it. Now, I'm looking at a multimillionaire who controls New York, Boston, Pittsburgh, Philly, Washington, Baltimore, New Haven, you know, like, and I, I was just, uh, but, you know, at the end of the night, that extra money that I asked for was in my envelope. And for every TV after that, I got paid the higher amount. It's just that the McMahons couldn't say, yeah, you deserve it. Yeah, you do a good job because they wanted to exert certain control over you. They didn't want you to get a big head. And um, yeah, I mean, that's just how they operated. And if you read Justin Roberts' book, uh, not much has changed. I was going to say, I mean, it seems like today the, and I'm no, no disrespect to anybody, but the apple really doesn't fall far from the tree. You see a lot of things that are going on. I mean, um, two years ago, uh, Neville asked for his release from the WWE and they weren't ready to do that. So they made him sit out an entire year. There's rumors of them doing the same thing with Sasha Banks right now. They, they don't like things that they can't control. And I guess... That's maybe how you become a billionaire. I don't know. I'm not a billionaire. Not yeah, a billionaire. But, so. well, that's, a little, that's a little bit different um, because those folks signed contracts for a certain amount of money for a certain amount of time. Now, you can ask for your release, but you shouldn't expect it. Otherwise, what's the, what's the point of a contract? I think WWE is within their rights to hold them. I mean, they're adults. I'm sure they have financial advisors. And even if they don't, they signed a contract. So... Yeah, I mean, when I was with WCW, I, I would never think of, of breaking a contract. You know, every May we would renegotiate. And that was just the way it was. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with them holding people to their word. I may not like their contracts. I may think that they're not independent contractors and they should receive benefits and so forth. But if you agree to it, 
then um, I think you should live up to your agreement. I would agree with you. I think as a fan, it's difficult right now because what it, to me, what it seems like the WWE is doing, and Joe and I were speaking about this yesterday off air, is they're just buying up all the talent. Um, oh, sorry, a little bit of feedback there. Um, they're buying up all the talent they can to prevent them from going to other places. And there's not enough. To, I know they have five hours, six hours of TV a week, but there's still too much talent for that um, for that amount of TV time. So. I, I think you know us fans see it as oh we're not seeing our favorite wrestlers week in and week out and maybe they're a little bit a, a bitter towards them right now. Yeah, I don't have a problem with a with a wrestler asking for an early release, but if they don't get the early release, don't pout about it. You made an agreement, so stand up to it. That's a you know that is a good point. That's a fair point, and you know business is business. And you mentioned um, you know your time in WCW. So after you left um, the WWF in 1985, it was I believe you signed with WCW in 1989. Yes. Mm-hmm. How were you following the NWA at that point? Um, I well, know, being a wrestling fan, there was a transition period. Um, when I left uh, the WWF, I started working for the AWA, Vern Gagne. Um, when he started his ESPN show, it came from Atlantic City. So I started that show with them until they moved it to Las Vegas. Uh, and I wasn't able to travel out uh, to the shows in Las Vegas. But Vern would call me in to do his pay-per-views. So I did um, Wrestle Rock in Minneapolis on pay-per-view. And I also announced... Uh, Super Clash 3, the Kerry Von Erich, Jerry Lawler main event in Chicago. Um, and in the meantime, I was announcing for the NWA live shows um, in Baltimore and at the Meadowlands. Um, when when Vinny expanded, Jim Crockett and Vern Gagne teamed together to form Pro Wrestling USA, and they came into the Northeast, a combined promotion. So I started to announce for them. Um, So there was a transition period. I worked for a few years every month in Baltimore for Jim Crockett. And then whenever they would come up to the Meadowlands, um, there's that viral video of, well, that was WCW. So that was a little later. Yeah, so I had worked for them. They knew my work. And how I came under contract with WCW was Jim Hurd, who was the executive vice president, the first one, um, saw me announce an AWA pay-per-view um, in uh, December of 1988 from Chicago. And he sent word to tell me that I needed to stop announcing their pay-per-views because by then I was doing W, I wasn't under contract, but I was doing WCW clash of champions. I was doing their pay-per-views and I, you know, like my reaction was, well, if Jim has a message for me, why doesn't he just call me? Like, why is he sending it through anybody? But if this is how he wants to communicate, you can tell him to go shove it because unless he puts me under contract, I'm not turning down any other work. And that's how I got my first WCW contract. 
Wow. I mean, persistence pays off. That That's a lot of, uh, you know, you said week after week. That's a lot of shows. Now, you were in both. I mean, at the height, you were in the WWF right before WrestleMania 1. You were in WCW in the late 90s. Uh, sorry, late 80s. How did the, the atmosphere in those two um, companies differ? You know, um, it, it, actually, I hold the distinction of being the only individual because there was a transition period of being the only individual to work for the WWF, the NWA, and the AWA all at the same time. Because um, um, Vinny was in the Meadowlands, so I announced the WWF shows. And then two weeks later, Pro Wrestling USA would come in, and I would announce their shows. And it didn't last long because I didn't feel comfortable with it. And that's really what caused me to leave the WWF. So getting back to your original question, no, there was no discussion about leaving. I just stopped going. And, um, you know, the, it, it was just a natural thing. I knew I didn't have a future there. Now, of course, um, I didn't even try to stay. I didn't want to stay because remember, you have to look at it through 1984 eyes before WrestleMania, before anyone could ever predict as to how huge you know, WWE would become, but it wouldn't matter, you know, because we just didn't, you know, he, he didn't like me. So I didn't dislike him so much. I, you know, I have little respect for him as a person, but I have a great deal of respect for him as a business person. And to be fair, I think a lot of, you know, uh, your best work came through WCW to me. Um, some of the most iconic announces is for uh, Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors, this is Sting. I mean, you were the voice of really that that boom for that, I guess the transition period for WCW, too. We had a lot of great stars come through, and you were there for all of them. You know, we opened it up to a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners here, and they got some, uh, they had some questions for you. So I want to run a couple by you, personal questions. Sure thing. Uh, who was your favorite person to announce? Um, I, I didn't have a, a favorite person to announce, um, you know, and it, it also would depend upon the decade of my career, because as a kid, as a fan, Bruno San Martino was my hero. So whenever I had an opportunity and it was often that I introduced Bruno, that was cool. Um, in fact, that very first night that I stepped in the ring in Wildwood, Bruno was in the main event. So, you know, to a to a 21 year old kid, I, you know, my knees were knocking yeah no um, no pressure in that kind of situation yeah yeah um, not really um anyone in particular you know the sting introduction came because i'm from the old school and i boom i boom my announcements and sting if you were to shout sting it closes your vocals so um i needed like a running start for that so i just created a couple of words leading into sting and it became this is sting. I didn't always hit it because it's because the way I boom and the way that closes your your throat up, um, you know, doesn't always isn't always compatible. Um, but what I did and I always did was I kept the introductions exactly the same and they were distinct from each other. Um, it was repetition. And so when people think of sting who were fans in the early 90s of WCW, they hear my voice because it was the only way it was introduced. Um, I, one of the things that, like sometimes when I watch WWE, 
it's too often everyone is introduced the same way. You know, like John Cena, Roman Reigns, you know, and they're not, I can color your personality by the way that I say your name. And uh, there's an art to it. So every, every, everyone was different. Rick Steiner, Scott Steiner, the Steiner brothers, you know, it was um, just, and I, I sort of just made it up. No one ever told me what to do. And 20 something years later, when I think of Sting, I think of that entrance. So you definitely did something right. Uh, what was your favorite event to announce? That also is divided by um, uh, decades. Um, and there were two, two three match series, one in um, when I was with the WWF. It was superstar Billy Graham being the world's champion and Bruno San Martino coming back for his title. And there were three matches in a row in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. 19,500 people sold out three months in a row. That was exciting. And then when I was uh, with NWA, WCW, it was the Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat matches from Chicago, from Nashville, and from New Orleans. So uh, those were my favorite series of matches to introduce because I understood the, um, the importance of what was going on at the time for the sake of history. And especially for like the Chi Town Rumble event, I can remember you know the importance placed on that entrance. So I, that was an amazing set of matches. Yeah, um, and if you think of Nashville, who was sitting at ringside, but we had three judges: Terry Funk, Pat O'Connor, and um, ooh, Pat O'Connor, Terry uh, Luthes. So I mean, how much history can surround you at, at one moment? Yeah, that, the spotlight is, is on in that situation. Uh, as an announcer, what is the biggest, loudest reaction you could remember somebody getting? Jeez, um, I really don't have any distinct memories of that at all. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. Who got the most negative reaction or the most heat consistently, would you say? Um, well, that would also, that would depend upon uh, the time periods. For instance, uh, Roddy Piper, you know, he was both heavily cheered at, you know, in, in certain, um, at certain times and then heavily booed. Um, you know, it, it just, it just depended. I, I really didn't, I don't know, I, I was always caught up in the moment, but I didn't really, I don't have a perspective on that as I look back. Sure, because you know, you're in the mindset you're doing your own thing and you want to perfect your craft and you kind of have blinders on at that point. Well, um, you, know, you have to remember that I've probably introduced tens, like over 10,000 wrestlers. <laughs> so you're, so that whoever, you know, is asking that question is asking me to narrow, to really narrow down on, you know, on something that's kind of impossible to do. You can't remember everyone? Come on. No, I, I don't think. <laughs> um, who was your favorite person to travel with? Um, I didn't have a favorite person to travel with. Um, I had built into my contract with WCW that I traveled alone. Um, their rule at the time was uh, they would only pay for a rental car um, if you had three employee three wrestlers in the car 
Um, I knew that knowing my personality, I wouldn't last long if I was, uh, you know, with the same people over and over and over again, all those nights that I, you know, announced and some, you know, there were, there were spans of time where I was on the road for 28 days. So what I would do would be every once in a while, I would take on a wrestler to come in with me. Now I had a sweet deal because I was getting performance pay, but corporate perks. So the company was paying for my flight like everyone else, but they were also paying for my hotel. They were paying for my food. They were paying for my transportation from home to the airport. They were paying for everything. So whatever income that I made, I was making clear and uh, free and clear. So when I would bring a wrestler with me, like Mick Foley, um, Dutch Mantel, uh, Two Cold Scorpio, Ron Simmons. I mean, I loved traveling with all those guys. There were circumstances that led to you know that happening. Um, I would share my perks with them, so they didn't have to pay for food, they didn't have to pay for a hotel. So they liked they liked traveling with GMC, and I enjoyed their company. That's the best of both worlds. That that's a great deal. So kudos to you on getting that. I know at the time, you know, like you said, you. You were the performance, but the corporate perks, and I, I know people weren't cheap. I know Mick Foley is notoriously stingy on, you know, not eating meals and, and hoarding his food for a while. So, listen, I, I don't blame him. That's probably a packed car whenever the option arose. Um, so, I got to ask you the one question that we ask everybody that comes on the show. Joe and I are split down the middle. Um, one thing we can never agree on, all time – in ring, Mike work everything. I am team Bret Hart. Joe is team Shawn Michaels. Gary, one of them has to go. Who do you stand with? I stand with Bret Hart. Um, and um, just because my first memories of Bret was the first time he came into the WWF. He was like the second match out. And he was like a very studious kind of guy. And my memories of him, uh, he'd get to the arena early. He would uh, change. He would grab a book. He would go to the corner and he would read. But um, that has nothing to do with the answer to your question. Um, you know, just as uh, I like someone that's more um, all business in the ring, less flash. Um, you know, it's not to take anything away from either of them. But I also... Um, felt um, more of um, my personality in line with Brett's also. So, yeah, I would go with Brett. Yeah, to me, everything Brett ever did in the ring, it looked real, it looked like it hurt, and it was always technically flawless. I love watching Brett. And All of his matches stand up to this day. Um, the excellence of execution. Right. It, it, everything he did meant something. There was a, a reason, a purpose. Um, you know, it. yeah, and... Um, yeah, I just prefer that to a more showboating style. Exactly. He told a story in the ring, and I, I go back and I watch the network today. And, you know, we, you and I were just speaking of the network. We were just talking about the Honor Club. We had seen you at WrestleCon, and you had listened to our show. And Joe and I were maybe a little perplexed about the negative feedback for the Ring of Honor uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling G1 Supercard show. Um, you were in Ring of Honor in the mid-2000s. Um, that... 
you know, Ring of Honor is a niche audience, niche, niche audience, whichever the word is. It's a niche audience, if you will. And it's for purists. So I don't want to say fans can be a little bit elitist, but they can be a little bit snobby because if they've had amazing professional wrestlers walk through that company literally since its inception. So Joe and I had our take a couple episodes ago. Um, I want you to tell me why you think that show had such a negative reaction online. Okay. My, well, uh, you just threw something out there that I, I have a question about. Is that the promotion's goal? Does the promotion want to cater to a limited um, hardcore audience? Or do they want to expand and, um, and have their, their wrestlers be known when they walk through an airport? What's yeah, their that's a good question because, you know, you bring in wrestlers from New Japan Pro Wrestling. I, I mean, I, I would assume everybody, the goal for everybody is to make money. At the expense of your product, who knows? And I think maybe that's what the fans are feeling right now. But you can always make more money. I mean, if you're, you know, if you expand your product, that's an important question because um, I don't follow New Japan Pro Wrestling and I'm only after I was the backstage interviewer in the mid 2000s, but I don't watch Ring of Honor on a regular basis. So when I watched the show um, on pay-per-view from home, I felt a little bit left out. The other thing now, this is <laughs> this is really going maybe a little bit too far, but. The there were there weren't only two attractions that people were tuning into. They just weren't tuning in for Ring of Honor, and they just weren't tuning in for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Why was that show so important? Uh, it was the first time they were ever in Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden was the third headliner. So why am I looking at a production that looks like it could come from Las Vegas? Looks like it come from it could come from anywhere the stage with the ramp. I would have, um, you remember the old school WWF Madison Square Garden shows where you see the guys come out of the locker room and they're walking down the, the hallway. They push the curtain aside. The camera follows them down this narrow aisle. I would have given it a Madison Square Garden feel, a, Madison, a, a traditional Madison Square Garden feel, and then pick up another 4,000 seats that they could have sold. So, um, well, they're, they're saying, yeah, we're in Madison Square Garden, but it looked like any other place. Eh, those are just some some thoughts. Here's a really big one. You want a really big one? But it's not from that show. It was from the Ring of Honor pay-per-view prior to that, where the main event, Jay Lethal and Mac Tadman went to a 60-minute time limit draw. Sure. Now, in order, it was a great match. It was terrific. I loved it. And all that, everything that I'm saying is I'm not dumping on the talent or the wrestling or the action. The only way I would dump on that is I still think that a show should build and you shouldn't see anything spectacular in the first couple matches. Because when I finish watching a Ring of Honor show and the main event is a championship match, I shouldn't walk away saying, wow, that was a really good match. But it wasn't anything special on the card. But here's my problem. Here's my problem with that 60-minute time limit draw. And in order for this to work, you always have to announce time limits. 
the match was never announced as a one fall, one hour time limit match. The announcers, as we got to the 40, 45, 50 minute time limit, never made reference to um, the length of the match in the, in the sense that, oh, I don't know, Jay Lethal's looking a little bit tired. Can he hang in there for another 10 minutes? So when the bell rang at the 60 minute mark, everybody looked lost. It was just like a flat. And, and that's a technique. That's, you can build so much drama with that. Um, and I'm not suggesting that you do what we did sometimes in WCW when you have the ring announcer get on the mic and say, 10 minutes remain, five minutes remain. I, you don't have to do that. But it needs to be acknowledged. And in order, in order for it to be authentic, every match needs to be introduced with a time limit so that when a time limit is, in, is used, people aren't saying, oh, it's going the full length. So if you have one fall 20 minute time limit match, sometimes the match goes to um, 19 minutes, 43 seconds, and there's a pinfall. Sometimes it goes to full length. Unpredictability, that's, you know, that adds excitement. And, and uh, I don't know, I, I, just, I just think that was just so obvious. I don't know how they could have missed that. Yeah, I, I agree because it adds a sense of urgency to the finish. I just watched the opening match of Starkey '87. It was Sting and um, Michael P.S.A.s and Jimmy Jim Garvin against Larry Zbysko, Eddie Gilbert, and somebody else. And as the time was ticking down, I mean, they were all going for pinfalls and they were going for roll-ups, whatever they can do. And you know, it added so much to the match. And the thing is, it's the second time Ring of Honor's done that in probably two years, and the first time, much to your point. Well, it was Roderick Strong and Jay Lethal. They didn't do that that time either. So you would hope they would learn from those things. But I mean, there's a reason that when you watch a football game, you watch a hockey game, you watch a basketball game, that they have the running time going. Because if it's if it's a close contest, that means something. You know, I mean, uh, it's it, it, so it's very sports based too. It's it's not just showbiz. It's showbiz and sports sure i mean if you watch a ufc fight and there's 10 seconds left and the guy's clearly down by two rounds he's gonna go you know go for broke in those last 10 seconds it adds a sense of reality and i think you know much to your point a lot of that is uh is lacking in a you know uh, in a lot of the wrestling organizations not just ring of honor but i like the idea of the details um, details you know these details are important and there needs to be somebody who's who watches those things. Um, I believe, and if you ever uh, talk to J.J. Dillon, you can um, check me on this. He was the detail guy in the NWA so that he knew what episode of the program ran. And so if somebody had gotten their arm injured that night in the arena at a live show, they had their arm bandaged up. You know what I'm saying? Like, detail because the people just saw it happen that morning on tv at night you don't expect the guy to to spring back to health that's been one of joe and my biggest gripes with the wwe's product is the lack of continuity and believe it or not listen i don't know if you're uh in, looking for a job right now gary but the wwe just posted on their uh their official careers website they're looking for somebody to help with continuity of the product and you sound like the guy for the job. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> you would think with the hundreds and hundreds of people that they have working for them that they, they wouldn't have someone on board. 
who has common sense. We're just talking about common sense and, and being logical. That's all. We're, and 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 I don't I don't mean to dump on Ring of Honor either. I love Ring of Honor. There are guys that are believe it or not that like uh, the Briscoe brothers and um, Jay Lethal and Colt Cabana. I know those guys and I know them from when I worked there. They were there from the beginning and I love them and I love their work. Um, I just, I just want to be, I want them to be the best they can be. Sure. And it, it doesn't sound like you're coming across negatively at all. It sounds like somebody who's, who cares and is invested in the product. Uh, my biggest question about the Briscoes is I, I've met them both twice. And to me, they are as scary as off camera as they are on camera. True or false? I always thought that too. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And the Briscoes, believe it or not, they're wrestling the um, Rock and Roll Express this weekend. It's, it's 2019 <laughs> is a crazy year. <laughs> I love it. So now I want to talk about you. You are, I mean, you're an author, you're uh, an actor, if you will, in your own stage play. The book is Body Slams, Memoirs of a Wrestling Pitchman. Um, tell me a little bit about how the book came about and how you transformed it into a stage show. Well, when I came off the road with WCW, that ended 21 years of constantly announcing being on national television and it was a very difficult transition to, um, you know, to, to come home and, and, and not prepare to go on the road again. So I didn't start out to write a book, but I just started to write some memories. I was just more of a therapeutic exercise and I just kept on writing, writing, writing. And I loved the writing experience. Um, and every day I wrote or edited something it took me two years sitting home doing that. I didn't go out and work anywhere else. I just, uh, I just loved that lifestyle. And, um, one of the things that I particularly liked about it was, um, quoting, you know, in loose quotes, um, the wrestlers, cause I could hear their voices. So that translated to the page. And I realized that, that's what a screenplay is. So when I finished the book, I wrote a screenplay based on wrestling. And, um, it, you know, it was just a, a lot of fun to do. So when people, uh, at the time, there was an 800 number and people called to order the book, the screenplay was used as an upsell. Say, oh, well, Gary Michael Capetta has also you know, written a screenplay called Fall for the Dream and, you know, try to add that onto their order. So it was because uh, it was it began as a self-published book. And uh, five years later, ECW Press picked it up and I wrote um, more. I added to it. I brought everybody up to date. And they were a, it's not a it's not a slam book in any way. Not that I'm totally positive about everyone that I ran into. Um, but there were a couple of people that had an issue with something that I said in regards to them. And I got in touch with them and I said, hey, look. I'll give you an opportunity to respond to what I said, and I'll give you the last word in this new edition of the book. And so I don't think that's ever been done before. Um, so um, you know, Mick Foley and Jim Cornette, they, they wrote rebuttals to what I originally had um, in, the, in the first edition. Um, it was also the first book that was ever um, featured and excerpted in a wrestling magazine. Um, I think it was Pro Wrestling Illustrated. 
Um, so that was cool. And that, that gave uh, the book a really nice push for sales. So the updated version of the book that has the rebuttals from, um, is that the one that's currently on Amazon right now? Uh, I think you can. Uh, yes. Yes. I did have both of them up there, but um, they're probably out of stock of the original. Um, yeah. Uh, ECW press. It's the, it's the color uh, cover as opposed to the black and white cover. Well, I want to let people know. I want to apologize. There's one left in stock right now on Amazon.com, and now there's not. So I picked up the last one on Amazon.com. Everybody can see my order is placed. So what you guys have to do is you have to go to Amazon.com, and you have to pick up the book. It's got great reviews. I am absolutely so much looking forward to it. Um, it you seems like a great to, read. You have to, um, when you read the book, um, you have to... Um, see when it was copy written and have that mentality because so much has happened since the book was written to today yeah i mean it, it's the book was written in 2000 what was it 2002 uh, originally it was written in 2000 and then the edition happened in 2006 Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, I mean, we're talking almost 19 years ago, so don't look through the looking glass, just take it, you know, the way it was at the time. Now you are uh, quite the busy man. Like I said, we mentioned, uh, we saw you at WrestleCon and you have uh, some other shows coming up. So tell us where all the fans can find you. Uh, on, um, it happens from when we're, re we're recording. It's uh, this coming Saturday, the 27th. I'll be at I play America freehold, New Jersey for an 80s wrestling convention. And then June 7th and 8th, I'll be in Providence, Rhode Island at the New England Fan Fest. Um, that's on the Saturday. On the Friday night, they're inducting me into the New England Hall of Fame, Wrestling Hall of Fame. So I'm, uh, I'm thrilled about that. So I, those are the, my two uh, upcoming events. Well, first and foremost, congratulations. Second of all, if anybody's listening and they're not following you over at uh, Facebook.com, Gary Michael Capetta, the support page, you post some really um, deep layer kind of professional wrestling stuff. Uh, you just posted the other day when you had to announce that Ric Flair was stripped of the NWA World Heavyweight title. I mean, that stuff that people... I don't want to say like the almost like the holy grail of professional wrestling video, you know. So definitely make sure you're following Gary Michael Capetta on Facebook. Some really cool stuff over there. Some uh, exclusive interviews you have coming up too, and uh, you're also on Twitter as well. Where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, simply Gary Capetta um, on Facebook. It's my initials GMC, the number four real GMC for real. We just started a uh, supporters page. Um, by subscription and um, I have a series um, of interviews with second and third generation wrestlers um, on the uh, subscription page that just started um, posting today Larry Zabisco's son Timothy Zabisco um, all these guys are you know currently wrestling um, Leland Race Harley's son Brian Pillman Jr. Um, Marshall and Ross Von Erich, who are uh, sons of Kevin. Um, Lance Anoe, he's the grandson of Alpha the Wild Samoan and Samu. Um, some really good, good stuff. These guys were so uh, forthcoming because um, I didn't ask your, you know, your stock questions. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, they were really personable and, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the series. So, uh, it's a good time to subscribe to the Gary Michael Capetta supporters page. Yeah, you've got some awesome stuff on here. Like you even have uh, Triple H versus Larry Zbysko from WCW Worldwide, nineteen ninety four. You know some real, some real deep cuts, as they say. So make sure you're following the Gary Michael Capetta page on Facebook and over there on um, Twitter. Gary, listen, we thank you so much for your time. You've been awesome to have on. We appreciate all your insight. And please make sure everybody follow the Facebook, follow the uh, the Twitter, and check them out at the 80s WrestleCon this weekend. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed the time with you. Thank you. And everybody, again, you're listening to the All Night Long Wrestling Podcast.